Well, I got to tell you, this is an extremely exciting day for Cactus. So Cactus, let me do something uh, very quickly before we focus our attention upon you. Let me uh, talk to the other campuses that are joining us right now, because it's really kind of fun for me to do this. Almost every week when I get up to speak, I'll say, uh, as our chapel next door and as our venue across the campus and as our Cactus campus join us for our time in the Word. I don't get to say that today. Today, I get to say, as our venue and as our chapel and as our Shea campus, join us for our time in the Word. <laughs> yep. So if you haven't guessed uh, Shea campus, and uh, I'm here at Cactus today, and it's an incredibly special day for me, for Pastor Rick, for Jill, and for all of you, and really our entire church, Scottsdale Bible Church, because we're celebrating five years of godly, spirit-filled existence uh, here in Phoenix as Scottsdale Bible Church, as the Cactus Campus. And Rick shared some memories earlier. Probably the most uh, profound memory for me is that Cactus was birthed out of prayer, as many of you know, and there was a time when Rick and myself and Pat Sullivan were literally standing either on this lot or right across the street, I can't remember which time, and we were praying about whether or not this would be the new home for our first multi-site, Cactus Campus. And, uh, and, and, and God just, I mean, gave such peace. I was the last one to get the peace. Rick remembers that. <laughs> I, I just didn't know if this was the place. And, and you have to get peace from him. And the Lord did. And from that point on, it's been an incredible ride. And, and I don't say this in an arrogant sense, but I just got to tell you how proud Cactus Campus, uh, Scottsdale Bible is of what God has done through you as you have availed yourself to him. I mean, we look back at the last five years, and when I look at Cactus Campus, I say to myself, only God, only God. Because we didn't know how to do a multi-site. You didn't know how to do a multi-site. We, we've been finding our way all along, and God has given incredible growth uh, to this church and life change along the way. And every person here who's had been changed by God through this local church could tell that story. And it's been an exciting year, this fifth year for Cactus. As some of Shea might not know, uh, it was this last spring that we actually purchased this facility so that this will now be a permanent home, hopefully till Jesus comes back, for Cactus Campus or Scottsdale Bible Church. And uh, that added a, a solidity and, and a firmness to what God has done here. Cactus has also grown uh, over the last five years. Uh, we went to two services right away five years ago. But Shay, now we're going to tell you, because these guys know this, uh, next month Cactus joins uh, the three-service rank by starting a Saturday evening service. So let's clap for that. That's really exciting. And so, you know, what way to go Cactus. I mean, this is just an amazing day to celebrate. And, uh, and I can't wait, as I say quite often, to see what God now does even more through you and through us as we have band together as the church. And Rick, you've done a phenomenal job. You really have. Just amazing. Praise the Lord. Now, 
Now, uh, at the end of this uh, message time today, uh, you know, I, I, I've said to you guys before, I, I, I know church people uh, way too well. I, uh, I, I'm not always proud of that, but I can predict what church people can do like any moment of the day because I've been hanging around you guys for way too long. And, and one of the things church people love to do is get out of church fast so that they can get to Denny's or wherever you're going next after this. Today is a little bit different. After I get done speaking, both here and again at the Shea campus, uh, our worship leaders and our campus pastors have something special planned. In other words, when I say amen here in about 30, 35 minutes, that is not your cue to leave. Give me a head nod if you all understand that. Good. So, cause, and, and you're not going to want to miss what we do have planned because it's a very important application uh, of what we're going to talk about today. So uh, I'll let you kind of wait with bated breath on that one. Uh, we're in the middle or at the end of a three-week series that um, many of you have been here for that came as a vision to us this last summer that we believe is a biblical, cogent, simple vision, but that will set the tone for Scottsdale Bible Church for the next season of ministry. And the vision is this, that we want everybody who owns and comes to this church to get God, to get real, and to get out there. That's our vision. Obviously, we want you to get God. We want you to understand who he is as the trinity of God so that you might have an intimate, close, abiding, daily relationship with your Savior, with your Father, and with the Holy Spirit. We want you to get real. We talked about that last week and what that means and, and, and the fact that if we are not authentic as followers of Jesus, then we're no good to each other. We're really not that useful in the hands of God, and we're certainly no good to this community around us. And then today, we're going to talk about what it means to get out there. But before we dive into God's Word, let's do this. Let's pray, and then we're going to just see where God leads today. Father, I do thank you for this amazing day here for our church, that as we celebrate what you have done here at our first multi-site, the Cactus Campus, over the last five years, truly, Lord, we look back and say, only God, only you. And so, Father, we thank you for what you have done with the, in and through these dear people. And we pray, God, that, as, uh, that they would feel encouraged today as a huge part of Scottsdale Bible Church. And that, Lord, we would all share in this celebration today. As we turn to your word now, Father, and unpack what it might mean for us to get out there, I pray, God, that you'd give us wisdom, that you would speak to each one of us individually and then collectively as a church. And Lord, my prayer is, is there would not be one of us here today, here at, the, at Cactus or at Shea or watching online, who escapes what you're after in our lives when it comes to getting out there. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I was in your shoes right now, I would be thinking, why do I need to get out there? But why do I need to get out there? I mean, the first two parts of our vision are pretty self-explanatory. I, I doubt you're asking if you come to church why you should get God, right? I mean, the reason you should get God is because churches believe in spiritual things. Christian churches believe in the Bible. We're all about God, so obviously our vision would be to help you get God. You're probably not even asking why should I get real, because as we unpacked last week, churches that are real, like the first century church, that engage in real teaching, real worship, real prayer, real relationships, and real generosity are the kind that God uses. And we all desire authenticity and to be real. You're probably not asking, why should I get real? But there are a lot of church people that do ask the question, why should I get out there? 
Maybe you don't, but there's 319,000 Protestant churches in the United States. We are hands down the most churched country on planet Earth. And out of all of those churches in America here, Protestant churches, there are many of them that quite frankly don't get out there. They are cloistered communities that exist primarily for themselves. They're Christian clubs that are inward focused, kind of like in the Middle Ages when they would dig moats around the church to keep all the pagans out. There's no moats around our churches anymore, but there might as well be. Because there's lots of churches today that really haven't caught the vision of why I should get out there. And so that's the question I want to ask and answer today for you and I. That as we move into an exciting season of life for Scottsdale Bible Church, one that our elders anticipate will be a season of depth as well as growth, of change as well as impact, in our community, why should you and I get out there? And there's two things I'm gonna share with you today. One of them is more philosophical and the other one is very, very practical. Let's start philosophical. It answers our question and here it is, that the reason we should get out there is because God says you and I are the very hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. Man, you guys got to stay with me on this one today because many Christians know this. I don't think many Christians have unpacked what this really means and caught the biblical profundity of what the Bible is getting at here, that you and I are the very hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. Now, in order to truly understand this point, I need to reintroduce you right now to a phrase that the Bible uses numerous times, and it's the phrase, the body of Christ. Hand raised, how many of you have ever heard that phrase, the body of Christ? So many of you, my guess is that Shay as well. Uh, but you know, many times we do a drive-by of that phrase, the body of Christ. We're not really trying to park in front of it and understand exactly what the Bible means by it. So that's what we're gonna do for about 10 minutes right now. And I, and I gotta tell you, this has the potential to rock your world for some of you. But look at what the Bible says in a couple of different places about you and I, the church. Romans 12, verses four and five. It, it says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then look at how Corinthians would say something similar. It says, for just as the body is one, the human body, and has many members or parts, and all the members of the human body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So twice here, notice that it mentions that you and I, and it does this in other books of the Bible too, like Ephesians and other ones, it tells us that you and I are the body of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the head of that body. Now, folks, so this sounds like a relatively simple phrase or statement, the body of Christ. What you need to know is that Bible experts have wrestled with precisely what this means for over 2,000 years. In other words, it's one thing to say, wasn't well, it nice that we're the body of Jesus? It's another thing to say, precisely what does the Bible mean when it says that we are his body? You see, some argue that this is a metaphor or an analogy. 
In other words, we are like a body. We are like God's body if he was to actually have one, but we really aren't his body in any physical sense. It's just a word picture to get a point across. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor. That's what some argue here. The only problem with this interpretation is that in all the places that the New Testament talks about the body of Christ, watch this, it never does so using metaphoric language. That should blow you away. Jesus used metaphors all the time, right? He said the kingdom of God is like, and then you give some nice little word picture. Problem is, is that it never says that about the body of Christ. It never says that you are like a body or a body of Jesus. It says that you are his body. And further, if this doesn't convince you, I don't know what will, in one particular passage that talks about this idea of the body of Christ, Colossians 1.18, when you look at the entire context of this passage, the context actually isn't talking about the body, it's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about all these literal non-allegorical things about Jesus. And then right in the middle of that discussion, it throws in this idea of you and I being his body with no evident switching of gears to a metaphor. Now, let me show you what I mean. This, is, this will be actually kind of revealing for some of us. Uh, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Just follow along as I read this. I think it will become clear. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, literally, the firstborn of all creation. These are my words in brackets, literally. For by him all things were created, literally, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, literally. And Jesus is before all things, literally, and in him all things hold together. Why don't you guys say the word with me? Literally. Then it says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Now pause right there. Just wrestle in your spirit right now. Could this be literal or non-literal? Look at what it goes on to say. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, literally, that in everything he might be preeminent, literally. And then it wraps up by saying, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, literally, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Say the word one last time with me, literally. So you get the idea. In the midst of all these literal descriptions of who Jesus is, it throws in there this idea that we are his body. And at least in my opinion, it'd be hard to argue that it's non-literal, that it's a metaphor. No, the Bible seems to say, and I'm not even sure exactly what all this means, but we're going to uh, uh, put it all together in a minute, that we are the body of Christ. And now others have suggested that maybe this isn't literal, but it's kind of a substitution thing going on here. You know, Jesus had a body when he was on this earth, but now that he's gone, we kind of replace it, so to speak, but we really aren't it. That's what some other Bible experts suggest. So we kind of replace or substitute Jesus' body in his stead. And though this could be a true and right understanding of what the Bible means by the body of Christ, again, I'm not going to spend much time on this, it says that there's no evidence that that is the case. It never says that you and I replace Jesus' body or that we're the substitute for Jesus' body. What does it say? We are his body. 
period. And so still others have even thought, and this is the last one I'll give you, that maybe it's just sort of some mystical spiritual thing going on here, like we aren't really Christ's literal body, but he does work in and through us as if we were his body. They're saying that, that, that his presence is with us when we function together well as a church, and that's what it means by saying that we're his body. But let's not take it so far as to say we're actually his literal body. And though I believe that this interpretation gets closer to what the Bible means by the body of Christ, I still think it falls short of what it says, the Bible, and that is that you are the body of Christ. No, folks, at the end of the day, and I've been wrestling with this for 30 years, I don't think it's an analogy. I don't think it's a replacement thing. I don't even think it's a mystical presence. Here's what the Bible teaches. Now, add all this up. Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man 2,000 years ago, fully man and fully, uh, and fully God. He died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven where he now reigns in power and majesty. And because he is not here in bodily form anymore, the Bible says that you and I are now the body of Jesus, his hands and his feet, literally and truly, and he is the head up in heaven directing all that we do. Does that get your heart pumping or what? And it's not a word picture. It's not some quaint analogy. It's not a nice little thought. It's literally true that when he looks at us, he says, you, the church, are the ones who do my bidding. You, the church, are the ones who are my hands. You are my feet. There's times he even says, you're my mouthpiece. You're my ears, even though he's the head. He says, you're the ones that I'm working primarily through to get my work done on planet Earth. We are the body of Christ. And just like Jesus spent the vast majority of his time on this earth getting out there with his body, his physical body, remember that? He walked all throughout Palestine and the Holy Land, teaching and doing miracles and healing and all the things that he did. Now that he has ascended into heaven, we get to do the same in our land, in our culture, as his body, his hands and feet. You know, this is so radical that some of you are going, is this like Jamie's interpretation or are there other people that might think this radical? Well, John Ortberg, in his book, God is Closer Than You Think, argues something similar. Ortberg argues that there's actually been two incarnations of God into this world over the centuries. The first one was when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. The second one is happening right now. Look at what he says. He says, God has incarnated himself again in the body. He is present to us through people, a real estate agent, a bank teller, a next-door neighbor, a homeless man. He says, when it comes to people, it is perhaps supremely true. God is closer than you think. Now, we got to be a little bit careful with this. I don't think Ortberg is suggesting here. In fact, he goes on in his book to make it very clear. He's not suggesting that we are Jesus. In fact, he makes it very clear that Jesus is Jesus and we are not. That there's a difference between the church, us, and our Savior, Jesus. And he even goes on to say that certainly the original incarnation was different than how God might incarnate himself uh, in the church today. And that's an important distinction to understand. 
But what I love, what Ortberg does here, and many other authors do this, is that they're saying the Bible's not kidding or overstating the case or being hyperbolic when it says that we, as Jesus' followers, are his body. Literally so. And by literal, we mean that when God wants to make his presence known on planet Earth, and here's my simple point, he wants to use you and I first and foremost. And if you don't hear anything else today, gang, hear that. Because I know how many Christian people think. It scares me how much I can anticipate what Christians are going to say and do. But I've been hanging around you guys for 35 years. And the average Christian today honestly thinks that most people do their business privately with God... They get saved privately with God and they, they have their quiet times with God and, and then they come together for this nice little fellowship thing and then we go off and do our business privately again. The problem with that thinking is I'm not saying there's not a private part of our walk with God is that that's way too binary. That's way too, well, this happens over here and this happens over here. Uh, the Bible says that God chooses to reveal himself primarily first and foremost in and through the community of believers. Now you are the body of Christ. This is why Bill Hybels says so clearly that the local church is the hope of the world. He believes that because the church is the body of Jesus. And if we're not functioning as the body, if we're not getting out there and doing body-like stuff, then it all falls apart. Now, believe it or not, at this point, I want to get real practical. Some of you are saying, well, that seems pretty practical enough. Nope, let's get down to real brass tacks, and let's get practical, move on to point two, and see what this might mean for us today. And so here's the second thing. I only got two points today that we need to understand about getting out there in light of this body of Christ understanding, and it's this, that when we, you and I, the church, Love and serve, people experience God through us. And that ought to rock your world. When you and I have the guts to get out there and to love and serve, and we'll see what that means in a minute, people have the, the, the option or the opportunity to experience the Lord through us. Very quickly, let me show you how the Bible truly is saying this. Um, it's fascinating. In Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, right after it declares us the body of Christ. That's really important. Verses 4 and 5 say, you are the body of Christ. Then look in verses 6 through 8. It all of a sudden switches gears and talks about you and I. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us then, then use them. If your gift is prophecy, speaking truth boldly, then in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, that's what I do, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, which means to encourage others, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, meaning gives, generously. The one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you see there? It's saying you're the body of Christ, and then the very next sentence says, now get out there and use the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he's deposited in you since the day you came to believe and see what God does with that. But Corinthians does the exact same thing in the same chapter that it says, now you are the body of Christ. 
It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each one, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then it goes on in that chapter, we don't have time to read it, to talk about wisdom and knowledge and faith and healing. And then Ephesians will talk about evangelism and shepherding and Peter will add hospitality. And you realize God's just gifted all of us in such amazing ways. And so right on the coattails of you and I being declared the literal body of Jesus Christ, it says, now get out there. And use the various gifts that God has deposited in you, because you all at least have one of them, and use it to love and serve those around you and see what God does with that. And guys, if you had all bought in earlier, and I hope you did, if you all bought, uh, bought in earlier to the fact that God really truly wants to use his body to bring life change to those around us, meaning he wants to use you and I then you ought to be just start, starting to get amped up with the potential of how God might even want to use you if you have the guts to get out there. So in our time remaining, what does it mean to get out there? What, what are the avenues that God has given us to, to do this in today? I, I want to wrap up by sharing with you two very practical avenues that I believe this touches. One of them has to do with what we do together as a church and the other one has to do with what we do out there in the community. So let's call these two avenues, using terms you guys all understand, community, meaning our internal community here, and mission, meaning our mission in getting out there. And, and, and what you're going to notice here right now is that if you and I are willing to roll up our sleeves, recognize that God wants to use the body, and literally open ourselves up to being Jesus two and four each other, and two and four those out there, spiritual sparks are going to fly, and you're going to be amazed at what God would do. Let's talk about community. In his book, Stories for the Journey, Bill White tells the story of a couple named Hans and Enid who came to America shortly after World War II. Hans had been a seminary professor before the war in Europe, and he was forced to flee there and came here to America. And eventually, Hans and Enid found a small seminary to teach in here in the States. And for years, Hans taught theology at this small seminary and raised his family here in America. And one of the things that he was known for, and you guys can just picture this, just picture a nice old European couple. Hans was known for his incredible love and care for Enid. He could be seen walking on the campus every afternoon, taking a walk with her, holding her hand. He could be seen in church every Sunday where you guys are right now, sitting with his wife right next to him, holding her hand. She was literally the queen of his life. They'd been through so much. And everybody that saw this was inspired by it. And then one day, as things happened, Enid died. And Hans was overwhelmed with sorrow, and so he stopped taking walks. He stopped going to church. He even stopped eating. Some of you can't relate to that, but some of you can. Some of you know the throes of grief and how, how, how brutal that can be on one's spirit. And in response to this, the president of the seminary, along with three longtime friends, started visiting Hans on a regular basis. But the loneliness and the depression stayed. 
He was experiencing what many authors call the dark night of the soul. And again, some of you have been there where the darkness sets in, even for a veteran believer, and, and it doesn't go away. And one day, Hans got so low, true story, they announced to his friends, I am no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in him anymore. This guy was a seminary professor. <laughs> Teaching people theology. Do we all understand that seminary professors are not above pastors? The reason that's true is because they teach us pastors how to be pastors. They're the experts that pastors go to. And so this is a guy who's been doing that for years, who went through World War II, who's seen God show up on multiple occasions, but the love of his life was gone, and the darkness has set in, and he was not able to see anything clearly at that time. Let me ask you, before I read you the rest of the story, what would you do if you were that seminary professor or you were one of the three friends? Again, I'm not even going to take a guess at what Christians might do today. Uh, but I want you to wrestle with how you would respond to a guy that says, I'm no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in him anymore. But White goes on to say that when Han made, Hans made this statement, there was a moment of silence, as you can imagine, and then the president of the seminary said this. He said, then Hans, we will believe for you. We will make your confession for you. And we will pray for you. And the four men showed up every day for months on end to pray with and for Hans. And he wouldn't pray during that time with them. Almost miraculously, after many months of prayer and regular visit with Hans, one day as they were praying, he looked up and had a small smile on his face, and he said, and I quote, it's no longer necessary for you to pray for me today. Today, I would like you to pray with me. And as White says, the dark night of the soul had passed, but it passed because his friends stayed you know what blows me away the most about that story? And, and i got to confess you, I, I don't even know as a Protestant evangelical pastor what to make of this because we don't ever even say things like this in our tradition. What blows me away is when the president of that seminary said, then we will believe for you. We will make our, your confession for you. Again, I, I don't know what to make of that because you and I don't ever come close to doing something like that. We have such an individualistic style of Christianity that, yes, we have community, but, you know, it's up to Rick to believe. It's up to Jill to believe. It's up to my wife to believe. It's up to Bill to believe. And if they're struggling with belief, well, hey, I can pray for their pathetic soul, but I can't do much more than that. But this guy said, no, <laughs> then we're going to believe for you. The reason I wrestle with that is I don't know if that counts or not. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what God says about that because belief is an individual experience. But isn't there also something incredibly beautiful and powerful, even if it seems beyond our imagination, for a guy to be so hurting and to have his friends say, we'll believe for you. We'll make our, your confession for you. And we're not going anywhere. See, that's the closest story I, I've ever seen of what it might mean to be Jesus to each other. And all I know, and the reason I'm tearing up a little bit, is that in my darkest moments, if I had friends like that around me, and I got a couple, it's just apples of gold. I mean, it's worth everything to me. 
that that's the community that my soul longs for, and that's the power that can happen when you and I are willing, now watch this, to get out there into each other's lives. You see, some of you think getting out there just means I gotta go out and share the four spiritual laws or evangelize or knock on doors or something like that. Please know, we're shooting for a lot deeper than that. <laughs> we're gonna get to our mission aspect in a minute, but get out there also means to get out of the seat that you're in, that you inhabit every, every Sunday or Saturday night and get involved in each other's lives and do so richly. Please don't talk about the Browns or their enemy, the Steelers, or something like that. Those are wonderful topics to talk about. I, I love to talk sports. I love to talk cars and all that. But you guys even know, every time I walk away from a conversation like that, I don't feel filled up. I feel mildly happy, especially if I'm being derogatory toward a Steelers fan. But other than that, I, I, I don't, I, I, it does nothing for my spirit, amen? But when I have a meaningful conversation, which I sense the Spirit of God pouring in and through me to another believer, that other believer to me, and I can almost touch the hands and feet of Jesus. Now that means something to me. And that's the glue of our community. Uh, Sam Rayburn is one of the most well-known speakers of the House of Representatives in the history of American politics. Some of you might have heard of him. He existed a long time ago. Serving more years as speaker than anyone before or after him, Rayburn was known for his fairness, his candor, his integrity, and his honesty. And he grew up in a small little town in Texas called Bonham, Texas, but he spent the vast majority of his adult life in Washington, D.C., uh, in politics as a respected legislature, as legislator. But, but in 1960, Rayburn got cancer, and he shocked the Washington elite when the moment he got diagnosed with cancer, he said, I'm moving back to Bonham, Texas. And some of you know where this is going. I mean, the Washington elite said, you got the best cancer care here. You have all your adult friendships here. You know, you spent all your adult life here. Why in the world would you go back to that town that you haven't been back in since you were a kid? And here was his answer, and I quote. He said, because in Bonham, Texas, they know if you're sick, and they care when you die. See, see that's what you guys long for. That's what I long for. And here's my vision. Here's the vision of your elders. We want the church to be that. We want your church to be a place where if you get the bad news someday, you say, I'm staying right here because in my church, they care when you're sick and they know when you die. Or maybe backwards, they know when you're sick and they care when you die. And it's true. They love you that much. And you see, that's the vision you and I have. Are we willing to be hands and feet, that kind of community? And then very quickly, notice with me, because we're going to talk about this the next few weeks even more, the idea of mission and what it means to get out there. But, but notice with me that getting out there is the literal body of Jesus also affects our mission. In our mission, isn't sexy, it's not flashy, it's, it's not like when you tell it to people, they go, ooh, like that. But, but it's thoroughly biblical. Do you guys remember what our mission is? It's capsulized in three words. I say it like this. Win, build, anybody know what the last word is? Send. Say that with me, those three words. Win, build, and send. One more time. Win, build, and send. Told you, it's not flashy. You're not going to go tomorrow morning to your work associates and say, hey, win, build, send. I mean, it's just not that kind of thing. But it has teeth for you and I, and it's thoroughly biblical. Our mission, based on Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is to win people to faith in Jesus Christ, to then build them up in their faith, which is what we're doing right now, and then watch this, to send each other 
back out into culture and even to other parts of the world to what? To be winners and builders themselves. That's our mission. It's not complicated. But we stay myopically focused on that as a leadership team because that's what the church does. And one of the ways that our church has chosen, now this will be our, our, our second to last thought, one of the ways that our church has chosen to send is through what we call service-based outreach. We've been doing it for 55 years as a church now, way before this idea of missional became popular among our younger evangelicals. Service-based outreach simply means that if we're going to get, get the attention of the community around us, this upside-down community, then maybe it will work best if we love them and serve them and then talk to them about Jesus. Give me a head nod that you all understand that logic. See, a lot of Christians don't do it that way. A lot of Christians just sort of, you know, hammer somebody uh, with the truth right away. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? It doesn't work very well for the average. That's why people think we're nuts. They think we're pushy. We think we're angry. I can't imagine why they would think that, but they think that about us. <laughs> and so our churches said, no, why don't we love them first, serve them first, get out there in their lives, and then we'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So our church has a rich history of all the ministries that have either been started through our church or by people in our church way back when. Uh, neighborhood Ministries with Kit Danley, Just Moved with Susan Miller, Souls for Souls, Family Matters with Dr. Tim Kimmel. Uh, we do an amazing thing every December called Christmas in the Barrio as a church. We do special offerings like we did for Irma and Harvey, the hurricanes. We, we, we do our Winter Wonder Outreach, which is our largest outreach of the year, in which we give literally tens of thousands of dollars to usually classrooms or organizations that, that have needs needs in our, in our city. I mean, you guys are known for that. And you know what the result of that is? Is that when people look at our church, at the very least, even if they think we're nuts on a theological level, they look at us and say, but at the very least, they care. And they're involved. And it gives us the right, the, the, the option, if you will, the opportunity to speak Jesus into them. What are we doing when we do that? Here it is. This will put it all together for you. We're being his hands and his feet. Amen? That's what we're doing. And so this weekend when you have a chance to serve here at Cactus and then all throughout the Shea campus, I hope you take advantage of that. Because every opportunity we get a chance to serve and love, God is in that. And it's amazing to see what he does. I want to wrap up by just sharing a quote from a book that I read or I'm reading right now that I'm almost done with. Somebody sent it to me this week. It's a book written by an English professor, a college English professor out in the Midwest. And uh, he's about my age, and he uh, is a friend of one of my friends from high school. And, and he had a conversion to Christianity much later in life, just about probably maybe 15, 20 years ago. And, um, and, and now he kind of mixes his English teaching and, and, and his Christian faith together. And he wrote a book called Meditations on Grace in a World with Teeth. I like the title of that, Meditations on Grace in a World with Teeth. And I, and I just want to share with you, in one chapter, he's writing about how our culture is upside down. And this is kind of a cool word picture, but he says, um, the church also is called to be upside down, but just in a different way than our culture. We're called to be upside down because our culture is all about getting ahead and promotion and success and dog-eat-dog -dog and all that, and, and we're called to love and serve. So, so we're called to enter into this upside-down world in an upside-down way. It's just that it's a different upside-down way than our world is. And listen to what he says. He says, this is what the church should be. 
a place to think about God, to sing and dance, to laugh and talk, to cry, and remind ourselves that the servant is not greater than the master. That even though the world has teeth, we have one another. And then the most important thing, go into the world and put into practice those upside-down ideas. Feed the hungry, give cold cups of water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, love the outcast and the unwanted. We leave the gathering of upside-down people and try to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, show grace to a world that may not have ever experienced it. He says we are upside-down people living an upside-down life in a world that does not understand or care. But we care. We care about each other. We care about you. We love each other in the way Christ first loved us, and we love you. Welcome to this upside-down world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the call that you have given us in this amazing reality of being your hands and feet to get out there. And, and I thank you, God, that you have given this call specifically to Scottsdale Bible Church, even for this next season. God, in many ways, our church has done a wonderful job of being generous and helping ministries and all things we do. But God, it's time now for us to get our feet going and to get our hands moving and to not be afraid, Lord, to get invested in lost people's lives as well as in each other's lives. And so, God, as we embrace this vision that you have given us, it's so biblically cogent to get God, to get real and get out there. God, may you change us from the inside out, and may you use us as a church, one that you would be so proud of, God, that on the day that we meet you face to face, your only words will be, well done, good and faithful servants. That's what we long for in Jesus' name.